Let's open the word of God together this morning to the book of Numbers. Our text will be in chapter 24, but we'll begin reading in chapter 23 at verse 27. Numbers 23, beginning at verse 27. The text will be verses 5 through 9 of chapter 24. This is the account of Balaam's prophecies. You remember that Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. The Israelites are on their way to the land of Canaan, almost ready to enter into that land And Balak, the king of Moab, sees that he's going to be destroyed by them. And so he's trying to find some way that he can overcome the Israelites. And he thinks the only way is if I separate their God from them, turn their God against them. Their God is why they are defeating all of their enemies. And so he hires Balaam, this sorcerer, to turn God against his people three times. Balaam makes the attempt to do so, and we are reading now of that third attempt. Numbers 23, beginning at verse 27. And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. Peradventure it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. And Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor that looketh toward Jeshimon. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes. And he saw Israel abiding in his tents, according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, he hath said which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. Now these are the words of Balaam's prophecy a blessing instead of a curse, that run through verse 9, and that's the words of our text. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel, as the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of line aloes which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, And his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, and as a great lion, who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies. And behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor. But lo, 
the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. And Balaam said unto Balak, Spake I not also to thy messengers, which thou sentest unto me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of mine own mind. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. To that point we read the holy and inspired word of Jehovah God. Our text is verses 5 through 9. Let's reread that one more time. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! As the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of line aloes which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. He shall eat up the nations his enemies, and shall break their bones, and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. Beloved of God, in our text, Balak, the king of Moab, is quite frustrated. Two times now, he has hired Balaam, this internationally renowned sorcerer, to grasp a hold of Jehovah and to force Jehovah to curse his people. But Jehovah will not be grasped and will not be controlled. Instead, Jehovah has controlled the supposed controller and has used Balaam as his own mouthpiece to prophesy blessing upon his people. Balak, though frustrated, thinks to try one more time. Maybe if we try a new spot, maybe a a more conducive, more holy place from which Balaam can grasp hold of Jehovah and there curse his people. Verse 27 of chapter 23, And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. Peradventure it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. So he brings Balaam to the top of a mountain called Peor, from which Top, Balaam can see all of the camp of Israel, two million people camped in the wilderness down below. However, things don't go any differently than the first two times. Jehovah takes control of Balaam, and though this man is unregenerate and remains unregenerate, he uses him so that Balaam becomes a prophet speaking the message of Jehovah God upon his people in such a way that Balaam can see temporarily something of the beauty of what God is declaring concerning Israel so that Balaam speaks this blessing with an exclamation. How goodly are your tents, 
O Israel, as though he himself is overcome by the beauty of what he is seeing. Speaking on God's behalf, he sees the beauty of Israel in her home life. The beauty of Israel then, the beauty of Israel now. The beauty of the faithful people of God in every age, in every place, in their home life. How goodly are your tents. May that message then that's intended not only for Israel then, but for the church of Christ now too, be an encouragement to God's people today as well. Goodly tents is the theme. Goodly tents. We'll notice first the meaning of that. Second, the reason for it and the result of it. Goodly tents, the meaning, the reason, and the result. God gives Balaam here in our text to not merely see the physical Israel that is down below in the wilderness from the vantage point of this mountain that he is upon, but he gives Balaam to see true Israel. He gives him to see God's people, the church, something about the church, the character of the church in every age and place. And he gives Balaam the ability to see that spiritual people of God spiritually. You can see the truth of that by thinking briefly about what Balaam says he sees in contrast to what he's actually seeing with his physical eye because they don't match at all. We read in verse 2 that Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel abiding in his tents according to his tribes down there below. That was what he physically saw. But then when he speaks about what he is seeing, he exclaims, How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, and your tabernacles, O Israel. And goodly there means how lovely, how pleasant, how beautiful, and how uniquely beautiful are your tents, O Israel. And of course, there was nothing about Israel's tents physically that would ever lead anybody to exclaim like that about them. Israel's tents were nothing special. They'd just been coming through the wilderness for 40 years. Their tents were old, beaten by the sun. They were well organized around the tabernacle to be sure but nothing that could be seen with the naked eye about them would ever lead anybody to exclaim like this. Now here are some tents. Of all the tents that I've seen in my life, these are uniquely lovely, pleasant, beautiful. That shows that Balaam is seeing something more than what can be seen with the naked eye. And then think about the setting. What does Balaam say about the setting in which he sees these tents. We read again in verse 2 that Balaam set his face toward the wilderness where those tents were sitting. These tents were all together compact in a desert situation where no water was. In 28 of chapter 23, it's called Jeshimon. That word means 
a wasteland. It was the waste howling wilderness just, just outside of the land of Canaan. That was what Balaam was seeing with his physical eye. And yet, when he exclaims about what he's seeing, he says, I can see all of these tents surrounded by water. There's rivers running right through the middle of these tents. There's an oasis growing here. Look at verse 6. As gardens by the river's side, as trees of aloe and cedars by the water. He cries out that he sees all these tents in a valley full of rivers and ponds, water. The only explanation for this is what we read in verse 2. That the Spirit came upon him. So that verse 4, in a trance, he sees the church as she is. Ideally, spiritually, he has his eyes opened to see things that cannot be seen with the naked eye. And he knows it. Balaam, the son of Beor, hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said. The main thing that Balaam sees in this trance is the pleasantness, the loveliness, the beauty the uniqueness of the faithful covenant home in the eyes of Jehovah God. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob. The tents stand for what is inside that tent, the spiritual life going on in the homes, in the families, in those tents. And he describes that Life, home life, going on inside these tents with four images in verse 6. Notice the word as used four times in verse 6 to compare the tents to something. These tents are as this, as this, four times. First, the tents are as the valleys spread forth. That's not now talking about the setting. It's talking about the tents themselves. He sees these tents as valleys. What are the valleys known for? They're known for lushness, growth, greenness, as opposed to the mountains around that are barren and rocky. Second, these tents, he says, are as gardens, lush gardens full of pleasing flowers, and grass, well watered. Third, he describes these tents as trees of line aloes. Trees of line aloes. Line aloes are a certain kind of tree that had a flower that made a very pleasing scent. And then fourth, he describes these tents as cedar trees. Strong, great cedars growing up tall and Unmovable. The images of a garden. These tents are like so many individual gardens with trees growing up out of them. It's a description of the spiritual lushness, strength, loveliness, fruitfulness of the home and covenant with God. How goodly, how pleasant. How lovely, how unique is the home in covenant with Jehovah God, beloved. The covenant home is an absolute miracle of God's grace. It is a countercultural wonder 
It's a taste of heaven in the midst of this world. We're all around is wilderness and desert. And how much more stark is that not now than even in years past? That here is a garden, a spiritual garden growing in this home. husband and wife are committed to each other. In spite of their own sins and weaknesses, in spite of troubles that can be there, because they look up and see the Lord Jesus Christ in his grace faithful to them in spite of their sins and weaknesses. The covenant home where there are children perhaps growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, rising up like those cedars or line aloes in the midst of that home. A covenant home where there is fruit, or whoever is in that home is seeing sin in one's self for what it is, the sinfulness of sin before Jehovah God and confessing that Nobody else sees that going on in that home. Repenting of that sin and confessing it before God, claiming the blood of Jesus Christ, seeking to live a life of true godliness before the face of Jehovah God, where children are growing in the same, where they're learning to see the sin that hides in their hearts and to call it for what it is, pride and selfishness, and to confess it and to repent of it and to despise it, Ask the Lord for grace to forgive it. Children who are learning that the whole world doesn't revolve around them, but are learning to be outward, love for him and love for the neighbor. It's pleasing to Jehovah. It's a lush spiritual garden growing. The covenant home where the shutting of the door on that home is an image of the shutting out of the worldview of the world that is around, so that inside this home, godly priorities will reign. The word of God is going to rule and be the air we breathe in this home, where thoughts are being taken captive for the Lord Jesus Christ. Marvelous thing is the covenant home. And not just, beloved, homes where there is a marriage and children, It's not the only home that there is. It's not the only covenant home that there is. Homes of a single person or widow or widower. Homes of those whose children are perhaps grown, have left. Homes of those who maybe never had children. Homes of those unmarried, single. Think of that. That covenant home in contrast to the single home of the world. Who wants to even think about all the things that go on in the single home of the world, in the home of the child of God who remains unmarried? Consecrations unto Jehovah. It's a garden. It's a spiritual garden growing in the midst of this desert, this waste howling wilderness. It's an astounding thing. 
And you understand that for Balaam himself. This is a contrast. What he's seeing is a contrast to anything he's ever seen before. And he exclaims about it because it's so unique and it's so beautiful. Paganism is utterly destructive of any sense of home life. It was then, it is now, even if it flies under the banner of enlightened civilization. The worship of idol gods in paganism included all sorts of sexual immorality, which was destructive of any sense of a committed relationship of a home life. Part of the worship of the idols was often the offering of children as a sacrifice to that idol. How destructive of any sense of a home. And Balaam is seeing the contrast here. He's able to see the reality of what Proverbs 3 verse 33 says. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked. And to contrast that to what he sees, the blessing of the Lord is in the house of the just. You can see it. And so he exclaims about it. How goodly are your tents. Once it's over, of course. Once this vision is over, everything goes back to normal for him. And out of the hardness of the heart, in the very next chapter, he seeks the destruction of these Israelites. But now notice, how does he seek the destruction of those Israelites in the next chapter? He goes after their homes. In the matter of Baal Peor. Why? Because he's just seen it. And he's seen that this is the strength of these people. This is the heart. This is what is holding them so strongly. This is where, Balak, you want to attack these people? You want to destroy these people? Here's what you go after. You go after their homes. I've seen their homes. Their homes are astounding. There's something marvelous here. That's what you go for. Their tents are goodly tents. Tents, plural. Tabernacles, plural. Gardens, plural. Cedars, line aloes, plural. Balaam doesn't say, I see the camp of Israel, and then there's that one tent over there. How goodly is that tent over there, separated from the camp of Israel? And he doesn't say, I see the camp of Israel here in a, in a wilderness, desert situation. And then there's that one over there, and it has water all around it. How marvelous is that? How goodly are your tents together, O Israel. And the, and the water that he sees is not running somewhere out there. It's running right there in the camp. These rivers and these lakes and ponds, this oasis is right there in the middle of the camp of Israel where all these tents are. So that this water is feeding these gardens that these tents are so that they're growing lush. He's seeing something of the church and of the life of the church and of homes together in the church. And he's seeing something of the means of grace that's there in the church. That's the water that's feeding these tents so that they grow as lush gardens, pleasing unto the Lord God. It's like Psalm 128, isn't it? The first four verses of which are all about these goodly tents, these covenant homes, the good family life. And then in verse 5, 
we read, the Lord shall bless you this way. He's going to bless your home this way. Out of Zion. Not disconnected from the other homes in the church, but here, out of Zion, as your home grows, out of the rivers that flow here, in the means of grace, in the preached word, in the sacraments, in the other lesser means. How goodly are your tents together, O Israel. I wonder, can you see something of what Balaam saw? Beloved. Can you see it here, in this Israel of God? You prophets of God with the spirit of Christ upon you. Can't see it with the naked eye. It's nothing extraordinary about your houses from an external physical point of view, just as there was nothing extraordinary about Israel's tents from an external physical point of view. Maybe some here have Larger homes, some smaller, some newer, some older. But there's nothing really out of the ordinary. And you can't drive down the road and say, now look at that house. That's a very lovely house. That must be a covenant family that lives inside of that house. You can't see it with the naked eye, but with the eye of faith, with the spiritual eye. Can you see what Balaam saw, beloved? Goodly are your tents, O Israel. Seeing spiritual things spiritually. Can you see the loveliness of the covenant home and of the homes together? To see it is to exclaim about it. How unique, how lovely, how pleasing to Jehovah God and to us is this. Think about the contrast between a home in covenant with Jehovah God in the homes outside of Jesus Christ. Where husband and wife are second, third, fourth husband and wife and are at the end of the day likely using each other for personal gain until they can't anymore. And then I'm gone. So often or we're in the younger generation and not even getting married anymore, not even going to play the game, not even going to try to put the, the good face on it. We're just going to go into a relationship telling each other that we're just using each other for temporary bits of pleasure until we don't want to anymore, and then we're going to leave. A recent article in Time magazine said that millennials are not even getting married anymore, less and less Getting married, and the reason, according to Time magazine, is, quote, because marriage is becoming less highly regarded. In fact, many term marriage itself as a concept barbaric, end quote. It's a wilderness, desert. children think of the children growing up in these homes still being offered 
on the altar to idols. The idol of self, the idol of pleasure. It's heartbreaking. And Jehovah God from above scans his eyes upon all the homes in all the world, beloved. And he lights his eyes upon a covenant home his own work, and he sees the fruit of his doing in this garden. There's a lush garden growing here. It's pleasing to him. It's a sweet fragrance rising up to him. Songs that are sung in this home, the prayers that are prayed are like those line aloes, sweet fragrance rising up into his nostrils. Is there sin there? Absolutely there's sin there. Is there weakness? There absolutely. So that none of us would hardly even dare say that this is a lush garden for him because of the sinfulness that's in our home, sometimes even. May God forbid it. Some of the worst sins in our homes. Sins that you expect only to find out there in this world. But then may there be a brokenness of heart and a repentance and a return and an amendment of life and submitting one's life and home life unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But I know even in the faithful covenant home what it feels like. You, f- you don't feel like this. You wonder if there's even a, a tiny little sprig growing that's pleasing to him sometimes as your home feels like it's just limping along. And the burdens of parents and the worries about the children. And it doesn't seem like they're getting this and this. And I keep reinforcing it and reinforcing it. And yet, beloved, there is life there, is there not? Spiritual life there. And what a contrast to the homes of this world. God's own work in this home. He sees his own image being carried out in the life of this home see something of his own fatherhood being reflected in the fatherhood of the father there. Something of the son's life being reflected in the life of the children there. Something of the spirit's life, though the spirit is male, of course, being reflected in the mothering, bonding, nurturing aspect of the mother's work in that home. Do you understand how unmistakably different a covenant home is in the midst of this world? And all over this planet, he has these gardens, these lush gardens growing, these covenant homes making up his grand Israel of God. Homes that look on the outside as houses, nothing different from the houses that are around them, even if they look different from your houses. Some places they have thatched roofs. Maybe even dirt walls. Some places they're on the 63rd floor. Some places you wouldn't have any idea what the decorations on the wall even mean. And yet a covenant home, a home in covenant with Jehovah God, unto him in spiritual life, lushness rising up to him. Let that encourage you, beloved. There's no other way to describe that home except a covenant home. It doesn't fit into any other category, at least not in such a way that that category can really 
encapsulate what it is. You can't put it merely into political categories. That doesn't really capture what it is. You can't put it into economic categories. That doesn't really capture what it is. You can't put it into cultural or nationalistic categories so that if you'd say this is a Canadian home or an American home or an Asian home, that that really grasps, that doesn't do it. All you can say is this is a covenant home. That captures what it is. And let it encourage you that God sees this Balaam is declaring what God himself sees in his Israel. He sees this garden growing unto his glory. He sees children and young people. Your prayers being prayed in your home. Nobody else sees that. Rise up to him from the heart unto his glory. He sees, Dad your burden for your home, to exert the rule of Christ over your home with head and heart, leading your home, convicted, humbled before Jehovah, weak though you feel yourself to be. He sees, Mom, your tireless service to your home and children. Your nurture, your care, who else sees it inside your house? He sees it. It's pleasing to him. How lovely, he himself says. How lovely, how unique, how pleasant, how beautiful this is to me. And who are these people inside these homes? Nothing in themselves, depraved in themselves. Yet God has planted a garden. And gardens together in the midst of this wilderness an oasis running through it. How is it possible that this can even exist? Especially today in this wilderness, the spiritual desert. How can Jacob's tents be goodly and Israel's tabernacles lovely? And how is there even this oasis, this water that's feeding these Garden so that they grow up in the midst of a dry desert. We could say four things in answer to that question. First, we could say generally it's only because of God Himself and His work. Verse 6, which the Lord hath planted. And verse 8, God hath brought him forth out of Egypt, and God hath made him this. God has taken these homes out of the bondage of sin in Egypt and he has planted them in the oasis of his church that they might be fed with this water and grow up as spiritual gardens unto him. God has made them different. Second, we can say that God has done this because he puts his blessing upon these homes in his church. Remember that Balaam is declaring God's blessing upon Israel. He wanted to declare a curse from God upon Israel, but God used him to to declare his blessing upon Israel. And God's blessing is a powerful thing. 
It's an irresistibly powerful thing. It creates that which it is conveying. Your blessing doesn't do that. My blessing doesn't do that. Maybe you don't do that here. I don't know. But in the United States, at least, when people sneeze, we often say, bless you. It's a nice thing to do. But it doesn't actually bless anybody. It doesn't convey any blessing, the speaking of those words upon them. But when God speaks those words upon his church, it does. It conveys what he is speaking to them when he says, Homes, I bless you so that you rise up as spiritual gardens before me. Then they do. And when he says to his church, I bless you so that there is spiritual water here, an oasis, rivers of grace running through you here as tents gathered together so that your homes are as gardens growing up before me. Then it happens. Third, we can say that God blesses his church and homes this way as part of the blessings of his covenant. You notice that in verse 9, Balaam, totally unbeknownst to him, repeats over Israel one of the blessings of the covenant that God had given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. That's Genesis 12, verse 3. Though Balaam had absolutely no idea what he was saying or where he was drawing that from. God gave it to him to say. It's a blessing of the covenant, the bond that God establishes with his people in Jesus Christ in which he blesses them, one of which blessing is a blessing upon their homes and home life. God does this. He does this by blessing these homes and he blesses them as the blessings of his covenant. And then fourth we can say about this that these blessings are powerful as blessings of his covenant because they're rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the mediator of that covenant and the ground of those blessings and the administrator of those blessings. You see, there is a king who's coming out of this bunch of slaves, ex-slaves down there in the wilderness. In verse 7, Balaam begins to prophesy about the future. There's a shift there in verse 7. In 5 and 6, he's speaking what he sees. And then in verse 7, he's seeing something in the future about these people. And so now the tense of the verb switches. And everything he sees is about a coming king. A king is coming Israel will have a king in the future, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. What a prophecy to proclaim over this nomadic ragtag of ex-slaves who've never had a king. A king is in your future, Balaam prophesies, and he's going to be greater than Agag himself. Agag is king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the ones who attacked Israel on their way to Canaan when they received water from the rock. 
They represent the spiritual forces that are against God's church as she travels on her pilgrim way to the heavenly Canaan. And Agag is even a picture of the Antichrist in that regard. And this king that's coming to Israel will be higher than Agag. Who's higher than Agag? Only God himself, the son of God himself. That's the king that's coming to this people. And he's going to come right out of Israel. God's going to come being born out of them as their Messiah King to take the sins of this people upon himself, including their sins even in their home life and their family life. And he's going to bear them away upon his cross and he's going to rise again the third day and he's going to ascend to the right hand of God. And there as mediator of the covenant. He's going to pour out all of his blessings. That he's earned. In his cross and resurrection. Upon his church. As so much water. Of grace. Flow upon them. So that in the middle of a desert. There's an oasis. Of grace. And gardens growing. His home. Fragrances pleasing to Jehovah God. You have to ask yourself at some point in understanding this text, where does all this water come from ultimately that's here, this oasis in the midst of Israel's camp that flows through this setting? And the answer, beloved, is this king. In verse 7, he, the king, shall pour the water out of his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Images of a man who holds a pole. This is the way they carried water back then. A pole across his neck. And on each side of that pole are hanging wooden buckets full of water. And the image is that this king, his buckets are full of water. He's going to take those buckets with his two mighty arms and he's going to flip them over and they're going to pour down into the church to feed the church so that homes might grow up there as lush gardens to Jehovah God so that the seed may grow up in many waters verse 7 isn't that what's happening beloved isn't this what's happening here Lord's Day after Lord's Day Is not the Christ of God overturning his buckets so that through the word proclaimed and the sacraments and the other lesser means of grace flows to you in the camp of Israel so that tents Rise up as gardens lush before the Lord. This ought to encourage us. It ought also to convict us. It ought also to make us leave here thinking, Lord, I want it to be the case too as thy child 
when thy eyes scan the homes of this world and they, they light themselves upon my home, oh, that it might be, Father, that thou dost see this garden growing there to thy glory. And as the, as the fruit of this water poured out from the buckets of Christ even now, Maybe we say there are things that have to be different from my home. There are things we have to remove. Or maybe I need to keep going with this thing that I was doing and now I'm getting lax and I need to keep... May it be, Father, that there be lushness and vitality to thy glory. The result of this powerful grace in Jesus Christ flowing from his buckets of grace earned upon his cross as mediator of the covenant, becoming rivers and waters and oasis in the church, growing homes that are gardens of line aloes, is that the church herself stands in spiritual strength in the midst of this world. Verse 7, his kingdom shall be exalted Verses 8 and 9. He, Israel, has, hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn or a wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones and pierce them through with arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion and as a great lion, and who shall stir him up? You see, it's not only the case that the setting of the church in which these homes dwell, the water-filled oasis, serves to strengthen the homes so that they grow under the glory of the Lord. But it's also the case that these strengthened homes serve to become the strength of the church, so that the church stands strong in the midst of this world. Spiritually, she has the strength of a unicorn. Though attacked, she defeats her enemy. Though the devil attacks her, she resists his advances. And she lives faithful to him, confessing him, different from this wilderness world. It's a symbiotic relationship, you see. The church is used of God to strengthen the home, and the homes in turn strengthen the church. True Israel is like this, beloved, in principle. She is different. Never fully. Until we get to the end when the one grand family of God rises up as this fully lush spiritual garden as the waterfall of grace removes any sin from us. But Israel is this in the midst of this world now in part two. In spite of her sins and failures, God makes her this by his powerful, powerful grace, lovely to himself, pleasing to himself. Be encouraged, strengthened, convicted, thankful. And go and live with praises, thanks upon your lips to the glory of his name in your goodly tents. Amen.
Father, bless thy word to our hearing. Strengthen our faith and our hearts by it. Hear us, Father, and receive us in spite of our sins and weaknesses. And ever make us this for thy own glory. In Jesus' name.